0: Welcome to How You Slice It. Today, we have a very special guest, someone who I think the world of. This person has more knowledge about the pizza industry, more passion for the pizza industry and the operators than anyone I've ever met. Scott Wiener from Slice Out Hunger. Welcome to How You Slice It. Really excited for today's conversation.
1: Thanks. I'm bonkers excited to be here because I feel like the first time we met was at a similar table, yeah, in a similar way. Like it's it's awesome, and, and years later to be in the space and the Slice office with this whole situation and pizza boxes on the wall and gonna talk about pizza is nothing I'd rather do.
0: Absolutely. I I remember I remember that moment. We connected over email, I believe, and I came to meet you at uh, John's of Bleaker, and you had a, a booth in the corner. Which was sort of your quasi office, and uh, and that's where meetings happened. And uh, one of these booths that was all, so it has all those like etchings on it uh, where people have put their initials on it and all that good stuff is what I remember the most. Mm-hmm. But really excited to have you on board. And how amazing is this is this studio? What do you think of the setup?
1: I love it. I mean, you you sent me pictures of it while you were working on it, so I had a little preview. First of all, I love the booth. Yeah, this is a yeah. ply mold contour booth, which were used in pizzerias and diners because they were crazy durable. So I already know, cause I asked you before we started recording, and this is in fact a used one from a pizzeria That's in right. New Jersey. So this is exactly like sitting at this is part of why I love pizza. Cause I have this association with this yeah. booth
0: Growing up. yeah, Growing up, I would go to our local pizza shop. For me, the one closest to me was a s Pizza on Staten Island. I grew up on Staten Island. And they have these booths, they still do. <laughs> these booths, an arcade, and uh two slices, a can of Pepsi or Coke. What more is there to life?
1: You know, it was like, especially on half days of school, like if there was a half day on a Friday, we'd walk home and we would go past a place called Calabria Pizza in Cranford, New Jersey, where I grew up. And it was a slice and a soda for a buck fifty before five PM. And we'd sit in booths like this. If I hadn't a quarter, I would get a bouncy ball from the little machine in the corner. And it's those memories are the things that make that make pizza so exciting. It, you know, it's not, I don't remember exactly what the pizza was like. <laughs> I don't yeah, I, yeah. like I don't think it was the best, sorry. Yeah. But I remember all those things and that's why like this kind of booth is as symbolic to me about like what is exciting about that food, the same amount of excitement that you get from having a good slice.
0: So you are one of the most knowledgeable, experienced, passionate people about the industry. Going back to the early days, when did pizza become not only an important part of your personal life growing up, but then professional career?
1: It's funny, I, I think about this all the time because people ask me this on pizza tours almost every day. And I, I've never been able to figure out an exact moment or an exact answer. But I know that growing up, pizza, and this is the same story for every other human, pizza is a part of positive moments in your life. It's where you celebrate things. It's where you go after the soccer game. If you won, it's where you go to celebrate. If you lost, it's where you go to cheer yourself up. You know, it's, it, it's, it's just part of all these cultural, social activities. And it's always, you always end up leaving the pizzeria happier than you were going into it. And I think that really embedded something into me. So when that turned from being just like the normal excitement for pizza that every human has, I'm not special at all in that. But the reason for me that it turned into my lifestyle, profession, everything was probably initiated sometime like in high school when I think among my group of friends, I sort of became the de facto like pizza was my thing that I was into. I was like, you know, every group of friends, especially in high school, mm-hmm. you have there's like a thing that you're into and you become that. Per- like yep. one of my friends is like was in a video game. So that <laughs> was his thing. Yeah. And I was into music and into pizza. those two things. Music and pizza. Yeah. Music was really the first thing that was super, that -hmm. was like how you would qualify my obsession was music. I played drums and guitar. I used to play in bands. And then in college, those bands, we would tour anytime we were on a break from school. So those tours, I would book the tour because I was kind of the guy in the band who cared about doing things like that, recording, touring, all that. And I would book the tours to go to famous pizza cities because I really love pizza. And every I mean, it was- That's <laughs> genius. I mean, just what it was. So like, you know, I, I didn't know anything about New Haven yep. until my band was touring and we were at a pizzeria and somebody says, oh, have you ever heard of New Haven's got great pizza? And I said, I didn't know that because social media wasn't there yet. Right. And food blogs were just beginning, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So I would make lists of where people told me to go And then that's where we would do our touring and we would go and eat those pizzerias because it's inexpensive. And also you leave it in the van overnight and it's still good the next morning. (laughs) So I think that's the moment that my passion for the pizza as just like a, as a general term, growing up pizza is kind of fast food. That's when it turned to me to be this cultural barometer. Traveling around the country, you would sort of understand each community by the pizza that was the most popular there. The one that every oh oh you well you have to go to Geno's because they're the they've been around forever. Every town, every town has that
0: special place. The one that, or maybe two that are debated. That battle, yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. Every town has like yeah. you know the Peppies and mm-hmm. Sally's. Yeah. So I think in touring with the band, I started to keep a journal of notes of all these pizzerias with the receipts in there. I don't know wow. why, but that made me even more of the pizza nerd among my friends. And so when I when I started working and the band's all broke up and I had a real job and decided to quit my job because I just mm-hmm. couldn't see myself climbing the ladder in that job. It was about a month before my 26th birthday and I decided for my birthday I was going to invite all my friends and we're going to go and do a pizza crawl and I'm going to rent a school bus because a friend of mine from college her father owned some school bus company, and I was like, oh, "I'm gonna rent a school bus and a driver, and we're just gonna drive around all day and eat great pizza." And that's what we did. And at the end of that pizza crawl, my friends who were on it told me, "Well, obviously, this is what you should be doing. This is you just quit your job. This is the next thing that you're gonna do."
0: And so Scott's Pizza Tours was was that born. Was, was that was that the name of it from from the from day one?
1: Yeah, it's it. Yeah, I I never <laughs> thought of any other. It's just that's what it was gonna be because I wanted to be very clear that I'm not born and raised in New York. I'm not an expert. I've never owned and operated or worked in pizza. Like I wanted to make it very clear that this was my perspective. You're coming on a journey with me. Nobody else is ever gonna work for me. They were like yeah. at that point I was like, Oh, this it's just I remember my mother said, like, she said, Oh, you know, what'd you do today? She knew I quit my job. I'm like, Oh, you know, I went and did this, um taking these free business classes that the city of New York was offering. Yep. And I'm going to see a score mentor. And, and she said, is this really what you're going to do? And I remember saying, well, yeah. And she said, okay, well, what's it going to be called? And I said, well, I, I mean, every band I've ever been in, picking the name is the worst part. And you, you never end up with anything <laughs> yeah. good. But I, there wasn't even, a, it was just like, well, it's called Scott's Pizza Tours because what else would it be? And I remember her saying, well, your middle name's Joseph. The least you could do is call it Giuseppe's Pizza Tours. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, we're 0% Italian. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah, This has to be legit, honest, real. And, Amazing. Uh, yeah, so when you asked me how did I decide to make it more of my profession, it was more like my friends decided. For you. Yeah, because I never, ever wanted to run a business or be responsible for other people who would eventually work with me.
0: Well, look, we've I've been on the tour um, as a company, Slice, uh, in a moment in time, uh, it was my my vision to have every new person who joined Slice to be uh, to be on the tour. And uh, you know, I think we got derailed a little bit by by COVID. But Scott's Pizza Tours is one of the best experiences and events that anyone can go through uh, if you're visiting New York City and you want to see what real, authentic New York is about. Experiencing it through the lens of pizza, and your approach to it is. I thought was incredible uh going into it because you really took us through a number of shops with different backgrounds, different histories, different ovens, different styles of pizza, and what each one meant and I thought it was it was incredibly powerful so before we go get into the details i wanna i wanna know what were your one or two sort of deepest moments of fear, like when you turned the lights on for your business, what were the in that moment, what were the things that were running through your mind
1: well Number one was, are people going to show up to do this? Which with any business, you need customers. And with a business like this, where, you know, I grew up in a household where everything that I thought about doing, my parents would brainstorm about, oh, do we know anybody who's done that? Is there anybody you can talk to, a mentor or something? And then with this, we don't know anybody who's run a tour business, worked in tourism. I mean, it was nothing. So I didn't know anything about that. So People showing up was fear number one. Although that may actually have been number two because when you ask me that, the first thing I could think of is, biggest fear is I'm taking people around and trying to teach them something. I better know what I'm talking about because imposter syndrome is real. Yep. And I think it's good and healthy because my first thought was really, at the time, you know, I'm this 26 year old kid who's from New Jersey. I'm not from New York. I don't have a New York accent. People are gonna sign up and do this. How can I give them something that's authentic and that they'll be okay with that at the end of it, they won't say, well, gee, what the hell even was this? Yeah.
0: And then that's one of the common sort of beliefs. And I really want those listening to this conversation to feel like they're not alone. Part of my mission for for this platform is to provide a sounding board and an opportunity for our community and operators and uh, future operators and entrepreneurs to really uh, understand that everything that we're Feeling is probably not something that you know we're feeling alone. And so, on imposter syndrome, can you talk more about what that is? I know we, we kind of probably know what it is or have a common definition, but what is imposter syndrome, and why
1: do you think it's good? So, imposter syndrome is that thing. It's that voice in your head that's always telling you that you're a BS artist, that you're faking it, that you're not good enough, that somebody's gonna find you out. They're gonna figure out expose that you. Yeah, they're gonna expose you that you don't know what you're doing. And <laughs> yeah. And it's it's funny because some people use the phrase, fake it till you make it. And then some people use the phrase, oh, I'm not good enough or imposter syndrome or something. Mm-hmm. And it's really all kind of the same thing, but yep. different perspectives. And my perspective on it is that the moment that I think I'm on top and know everything, and that's the moment that you stop swimming and yep. and then you drown, like, that's n- not where you want to be. Right. I want to constantly feel like I should know more and I should be better so that I can constantly work because I've been doing it at this point for almost 14 years. Incredible. And yeah, can you believe it's been, I still cannot believe it. <laughs> and 14 years into it, I'm still thinking about oh, I need to find out this information about this flower product and oh, I can't believe I don't know the name of the family that built these three ovens that had a, like a masonry company in yep. 1892 to 1895. Like the stuff that I think I should know has gotten more niche. And from day one, I always thought, well, if somebody asks me a question on a tour, I have to have some background knowledge in it. And if I don't, I have to be very honest about what I do and don't know and then be able to research it. And it's kind of become a joke on the tour where people try to stump me. And I do not know everything. I absolutely do not know everything. But I kind of know the customer on the tour and I know what they're looking for. And they've gotten more sophisticated over the years. Now people know things about food that they didn't think about 10 years ago, five years ago, even. So now they've gotten more sophisticated, which means I can't slow down. Unfortunately, I still feel good. Like on every tour, I feel like. In the beginning, I think, okay, maybe t- today's the day that I'll be totally exposed—that I don't know anything. <laughs> Unfortunately enough, I've I've been able to respond with good answers the whole time.
0: It's uh, and it's so true. And through that journey, was there a moment in time where you felt like, ah, I made it? Maybe not in the sense that, hey, I'm 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 now perfect or I have everything figured out. But can you remember the turning point when you felt like, okay, your fear of failure. Uh, became sort of the lesser part of your brain and and sort of this realization of success and now it's all about improving. What was that turning point? When when did that happen?
1: I think I started trusting myself more when I realized that people in the industry treated me as a peer and not as some guy who runs a tour company that's just glomming on to my existing (laughs) business. Because that was also a big fear, which is I'm doing these tours. And when you're on an architecture tour, then the person who's leading you around knows a lot about these buildings and is giving you information. And I'm, I'm not talking about an inanimate object. I'm talking about something that's, first of all, food, which is subjective, everybody has their own opinion, but also it's human because the people running it are people. Yep. And I really wanted my customers to understand that the value of a restaurant does not end at the one bite of food, the first bite off the plate, that it's more. And so when people I respect start talking to me, calling me, asking me questions, not as an expert at all, but but really like as a peer, as somebody they could bounce things off of, that's when I started to think, okay, maybe, maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe it's okay. And like now, even today, when I get people on tours and they'll say the name of their favorite pizzeria, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, I know that owner very well. You know, we've traveled through Italy together. We've like been roommates at Pizza Expo or whatever. (laughs) I kind of have to bury some of that because it's not important. But I can remind myself like, okay, I've been accepted into this community not as somebody who just runs a tour company, but really as like a point of information who can help. You know, when I get a call from somebody who owns a pizzeria, they're just throwing it at me. Oh, hey, I'm thinking about doing New York slices. What's like the typical hydration and flour for New York? And they know they can call me. Incredible. And that's- that's cool.
0: So one of, the, uh, um, one of the name options for this podcast was families behind the counter. And so you speak to knowing the owners, the operators, the families behind some of these shops. Give me your most powerful family behind the counter story.
1: Wow. I mean, there's so <laughs> many. You like there's not enough hours in existence to talk about all those families. But there's something about the pride that families have in when they're the second or third generation. Like you go to Santillo's in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and Al doesn't talk about just what he does. He talks about the way his grandfather worked an oven and the way his father did. That's always really nice. But when you say family and pizzeria and families behind the counter, my first thought goes to Susan and Rose from John's Pizzeria in Queens in Elmhurst, mother-daughter team. Mm -hmm. John is Rose's husband. It's Rose and Susan working the place all the time. And it's so sweet to watch the interaction. And when you're there, you're sitting in this exact seat. Yep. You've got the (laughs) Tiffany-style plant. You got the mirrors with like the veins of gold through it. And you just hope that nobody ever remodels it. But when you're in there, you really feel like it's their space. I think it's such a cliche. People, oh, when you're in my restaurant, you're really in my house and you're my guest and da-da-da. Yep. Da. They never say that. They will never say that, but I feel it most when I'm in that place. Amazing. And I haven't been,
0: but but now uh, that is going to be one of, my next, one of my next visits.
1: I haven't been there in a while because I think they've been shut for most of, if not oh. all of the past two years. Mm. So as I tell you about it, I am hoping that they're open.
0: Uh, on that topic, COVID has been really devastating for so many small businesses, especially uh, restaurants. And so many of our favorite local pizza shops have struggled but also remained incredibly resilient. What are some of the themes that have come up for you in your conversations with operators over the last two years that you think, or at least give you hope for the industry as we
1: look forward? Well, fortunately the pizza industry is pretty agile and the focus for the whole food sector turned to delivery and takeout, which pizza has been the master of for so long. So that didn't really become a problem. The, you know, The problem came with restaurants that were in neighborhoods where there was a lot of tourist business or a lot of like late night business that just got shut off. But the big themes that I see are, first of all, that focus on the delivery and the the desire to enhance the delivery process, since that's all people had time for. And then I also am seeing a huge shift in pizzerias, refocusing their product, taking the time. They don't have to deal with the indoor dining for so long. Uh-huh. So they, oh, let's retool our dough. Let's, let's fix some of our operations. And actually, I think it's safe to say we've seen pizza quality increase since the pandemic hit because a lot of pizzerias have of taken that the time. Yeah. yeah.
0: What are the most important qualities to a great pizza? Like the end product, what are the most common themes Outside of love when you're making it.
1: No, um, yeah, which I, you know, that's another one of those yeah. cliches that I, <laughs> I love the pizza business and people in it, but I can't stand it when I hear that, like, oh, the secret is love. Yeah, yeah. Because, obviously. But, and I, this is a super subjective yeah, question. of course. I feel like the number one thing that's important, I don't care if you like thick crust, thin crust, cheesy, saucy, whatever. The most important thing is a pizza that makes you feel good. That's number one. You're happy after eating it. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, I think the more important thing is, maybe this is related to that other point, but the pizza that doesn't make you feel like you've just made a terrible mistake. You know, like like (laughs) the college late night slice where you're like, oh, should not have done that. But a lot of that is caused by Improper dough fermentation. Right. So what are those inputs, right? Like what yeah. are the things
0: that make that great slice that makes you feel really good about eating it?
1: Well, of course there's all those different styles. And not every style requires the same thing. Right. But for me, like a well-fermented dough, so when you eat it, it has flavor, texture, is light, is not dense and heavy. Mm-hmm. And a, a pizza that's balanced, that topping quantities and flavor profile is balanced. When I have a pizza that's smashes you over the head with spice or with salt to me that's it's not as exciting it's not as thrilling it may be thrilling at the moment oh i'm eating this spicy pizza (laughs) but then you're like but for what what's the second slice gonna do it's like a guitar solo you know what i mean yeah it's like okay cool guitar solo you're very good at playing the guitar congratulations but like when you hear a band a symphony all playing together i'm so much more impressed by a 60 piece orchestra that that can all work together to make you feel something.
0: Now, how important are the ingredients that go into it?
1: The ingredients are the ceiling. So if you don't need to make a great pizza, then you can set a low ceiling for yourself and use garbage. But if you want to make a good pizza, if you want to make anything that's good, the quality of the ingredients is, it's gonna set the pace. Set the bar.
0: Oh oh yeah. And then uh, New York water.
1: So Ilyar. Do you know
0: how often I hear this? And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm out of words at this point.
1: I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it yeah. honestly. Yeah. You don't have to name names. Have you ever had a terrible slice of pizza in New York? Yes. Yeah. Do you a- a think lot. that they used water from somewhere else? I think maybe they import Florida water. <laughs> <laughs> if the worst pizza in New York, yeah. which there is a lot of bad pizza, yeah. is 2,100, 2,200, you probably know better than I do, over 2,000 pizzerias. Yeah. A lot of them are not great. They all use New York water. And if the New York tap water is so ma- amazing and magical and special, then all the pizza would be good. So where did, where true. did that come from? Oh, I've been trying to track this. And yeah. it's really frustrating because I can't... I, I feel like I found articles in the 70s or in the 80s, like, late. Mm-hmm. I, I would have expected to find it earlier. I think in the 40s, there were some articles about... Um, that used that phrase sort of as, like... Um, you know, saying, oh, like people from the Netherlands are tall. It must be something in the water. You know, people use that phrase to talk about the baked goods and oh, of New York. Yeah. So I actually think that its origin was more as a metaphor. And then people started to take it literally because our water is very good. It's very soft, mm-hmm. not a high mineral content, but also it's not the lowest mineral content. Yep. So Portland, Oregon is like 17 parts per million. We've got around 44. Then you get LA, which is like 398. I love that you know this. I mean I keep a TDS meter <laughs> in my bag most days um so I can test total dissolved solids to the yeah. mineral content because on a tour I want people to understand like they want to know the answer but I actually want to give them how we know this because then it'll make them rethink questions a little bit yep. so it's not it can't be it's not it's not the
0: water. water so what do you think is the limiting factor for incredible delicious consistent pizza in more parts of the country the often story i hear is I live in LA, I live in Phoenix, I, li- I live in you know Kansas City, and I really miss New York quality pizza. What, what do you think is the limiting factor?
1: It's, it's mental, it's, a, it's a totally mental. I have two ways to answer this question. One way is the limiting factor in making good pizza is education, that's it. Yeah. LA, Phoenix, haven't been to Kansas City, but LA and Phoenix have at least one great pizza. Yeah, at least. Right, but yeah. all it takes is one to show you that it's possible. Mm-hmm. So once you have one great place in Phoenix, there's no reason all of it can't be great. It's all about education and desire and maybe, well, I serve a lower price point pizza and I don't wanna go through the process that's gonna take five days for my dough and which costs you space, and whatever. So that's, the educational part of it is, is really primary, but the ceiling on the quality of, of product I think sometimes it has to do with expectation where you're selling to a community whose expectation was created by a national chain or a global chain, I should say. And if that expectation was set in that place and then you feed them, you offer them a pizza that's smaller, that costs more, they won't care how arduous the process was to craft that pizza, where you imported the oven from. To them, they're trained to believe that value only means price versus quantity of food. Interesting. And I think the actual value has to do with price and quality of food. Independents and the global chains are not playing the same game. The big chains are, are doing a, it's a, about a dollar. It's a value game. Yeah, a dollar slice joint sells it for a dollar. That's That's their ceiling. But an independent can choose to make a quality pizza as long as they don't try to play by the rules of the global chain. That you know, you're not going to put up door hangers that say, "Come on by every Tuesday, two pizzas for only fifty five dollars." That's not going to move any right. pizzas, cause, right? Because right. the messaging should be two pizzas for like eight dollars. Yeah, and it's it's
0: really more about quality and education. And that's been my that's been my hypothesis, which is, you know, I think where uh, where people who have really learned the craft, and they've transported, maybe they, you know, New York transplants are in Florida, they're in some parts of Arizona. In essence. They go from New York to like these, you know, warmer towns, or they've expanded into New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And so it's really a matter of expanding that that education and the craft in order to provide access to more of the country for uh, for what they're seeing, which is which is great pizza. But I think part of what I heard is the location of where the consumer, the customers consuming the product may be creating a false sense of you know great quality versus poor quality. Like Easily said, two of the same slices may taste different if you're having one in New York versus having the same one in Denver. Do you think that's true?
1: I think that's such an amazing point because the culture of the location is going to influence not only like the demand of what the food should be, but also how you interact with the food. Yeah. You just made me think of something. You said before about people, let's say they leave New York and they say, oh, I really miss the New York slice thing. And they're in Kansas City. Sorry, yeah. Kansas City. Yeah. We're not picking on you. It's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but part of it is that, well, the reason that the New York Slice exists is because of the way New York is set up. Yeah. It's a grid. There's a, downtown, especially, there's a lot of small footprint storefronts. Mm-hmm. And that opened the doors to having these small portable, in quotes, stainless steel gas-fueled ovens that really started happening in the early 40s. And that gave way to the possibility of baking a pizza and reheating it when somebody came in to purchase the pizza. And then there's nowhere to sit. So you eat it as you're walking, which means that you pick it up and you fold it because that's the only way. Yeah, that's how it works. Uh So all those things are because of the way New York exists. And when you go to L.A., it's a different city the demands on that food are different. A large pizza is not 20 to 22 inches in diameter because it doesn't need to be because you're driving up to the place and you can't drive up and expect to have the same experience with the food that you would if you were walking up. And I feel like social media has made everybody feel like, in a positive way, they've made it's made everybody feel like they're in the same place and they can share mm-hmm. the same things. And I think social media has led to an increase in food quality and people... Seeing what somebody else is doing and doing the same thing, it's, what used to take decades is now taking months, not if days, not yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. Detroit-style pizza took a long time to really launch off, but now it's everywhere. I get questions every day about it. New York-style pizza was this kind of slow filtering thing that spread. Gradual. Yeah, but I think as a negative, it also means that the consumer is given this false expectation that you should be able to experience a mexican street taco a mexico city street taco anywhere the same way that you would experience it on the streets of mexico city right which it just it's just not going to happen no like neapolitan right. pizza when you eat it outside of naples i've had amazing neapolitan pizza but when you're in naples the experience the whole being in that place the terroir all that like it is true that it's that it's important to it so when you miss the new york slice part of you is missing running to the train yeah. with a slice in your hand and part of you is missing the you know like the smell of urine on the street <laughs> yeah. understood um shifting gears a little bit <laughs> it was like uh, ah yeah. no nope.
0: no it looked it, but it's but it's true and we'll get back to this which is uh, actually you know what i'll ask you now which is what are the three institutions that a pizza lover like a someone who's really passionate about pizza what are the 3 to 5 institutions or experiences that someone has to go through uh, at least once in their life you know you spoke okay. you spoke about neapolitan's you know neapolitan pizza in, in naples
1: yeah like, eating eating a neapolitan pizza in naples will shift your paradigm because of the feeling in the space in the look on everybody's face while they're there the passion of the pizza maker this nonchalance where in america we some places are either like treating it like they don't care or mm-hmm. they're treating it like they care too much. And in Naples, it's effortless. It's like breathing. That is an amazing experience to have. I think having a slice in New York, standing up on the street, I don't care where it is. On a but, paper plate. Yeah, on a paper plate. And the slice is hanging off the sides. That's important. <laughs> Grease on your hand from oh. the bottom of the plate. I had this woman named Lynn on the tour on Sunday and she said, oh, when I left New York 40 years ago and all I can think about is the oil dripping down my yeah. arm. <laughs> Like, which is funny, because to somebody, somebody who doesn't know that experience, oil dripping down your arm is a negative, but to the person who associates that with the joy of eating a slice of pizza on the street in New York, it's a positive. And both people are right. Yeah, you can dislike pineapple, and I can like it. Correct. It's okay. Correct. But pizza in Naples, the pizza on the street, and the pizza you make yourself at home. Oh, you make yourself that. I I know you might be thinking about like, what are three of the pizzerias that you need to experience? But I think making pizza yourself, and I don't care if you fail or succeed or whatever, you're always going to think you can make a better pizza. But that experience, I think, is so transformative that when you make a pizza that you are proud of, then you start to understand deeper about the skill of the person who makes the pizza at your local pizzeria. And I think that's a really important experience because it changes that position from being the position of the person flipping burgers that my mother always warned me about becoming. And like, you know, suddenly it becomes a positive because you realize, wait, I had trouble doing this. How the
0: heck, what magic are they doing? It's a craft. It's a craft. One of my favorite things that I've learned from you is the definition of pizza. (gasps) Ooh,
1: what did I say?
0: Well, it's the, how, how would you define pizza? You shared, I learned this on the, on the, on the the tour. tour.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm only wondering what I said because I, I'm always changing my definition of it because yeah. I, I'll preface it by saying words are always changing their meaning. And mm-hmm. even the word pizza historically has gone through a roller coaster of name, of meanings. But to me, it's a yeast leavened dough that gets stretched, topped, then baked. And of course, you can have little fuzzy things right beyond that, mm-hmm. like a par-baked Sicilian or a pizza frita, like a, like a, or a montanara fried pizza. But to me, that's is that, do you agree with it?
0: Yeah, well, the, the 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 one specific aspect of that is that it has to be baked at the same time.
1: Yeah, there's substantial weight on it during the bake. Got it.
0: And so, you know, the question is, if you bake a pizza or if you bake something and then you add toppings after, is that
1: a pizza? Right, to me, if, if there's substantial weight and then you add additional post-oven toppings, still a pizza. Still a pizza. But because of pizza's origin in the bread bakeries of the late, mid to late 1700s in Naples. The whole idea was without anything weighing down the dough, it inflates Mm -hmm. when you bake it. And that's a flatbread and you put stuff on it and (laughs) eat it with hummus and it's awesome. But if you weigh down the dough with something, then the pressure of the dough against the floor of the oven extracts heat from the oven floor and cools it down to prepare it for, for bread baking. And so it's the weight of those ingredients on top that does the practical job of cooling down the oven floor for a bread baker pre-pizzeria, bread wow. maker. But the, and the, so that weight on top is what makes that not just a flatbread, but specifically pizza napolitana. Incredible. Slice Out Hunger. Yes. I'll leave it at that. Walk <laughs> me through it. So, okay. I So Slice Out Hunger is, it's a nonprofit organization that does um, fundraising and just general work in the food insecurity sector through pizzerias and pizza-related campaigns and events around the U.S. Yep. So nationwide organization based in New York, essentially run by two people and a very small board and an amazing set of volunteers. And it's something that sprung out of the pizza tour business because a year into running my tours, I had, I guess, kind of like like a celebration first anniversary party. And a bunch of pizzerias gave me some free pies to serve at the party. And I just figured instead of just giving them away, why don't we charge everybody a buck per slice? And then Scott's Pizza Tours would match every dollar. And we could write a check to City Harvest, which yeah. is food collection, food rescue organization in New York. And that event happened for a few years. And Wait, by it- the way,
0: can we talk about the event? Because yeah. the event uh, is, I mean, it's one of the, one of the, my favorite nights of the entire year. It's one of my favorite events that I've ever attended. Can you, can you walk everyone through what this event is actually like?
1: Yeah. I mean, and it, it took three or four years to get to what the event really has become Mm -hmm. now, but picture this, you walk into a room and there are 60 pizzerias represented in that room. Most of the owners are there and they're serving slices of their pizza and it's $1 per slice. And all the best pizzerias in New York City and the surrounding area. And you get a pizza box when you walk in and you buy a bunch of tickets, a dollar per ticket. And then at each table, you want a slice of Dafara, you want a slice of Joe's, you want a slice of whatever, downtown pizza, hand over a ticket. And then about 10 minutes into it, it becomes so much hugging among pizza people. And then all the, all the customers are sitting on the floor with their boxes and discussing each slice and marking them with little flags that they make at home. And it becomes such an amazing pizza appreciation community event that if it were just a fun pizza party, that would be enough. Yeah. But all the money that we raise gets matched by a few different sponsors. And at the end of the night, we've raised $75,000 for some local hunger relief organization. Incredible. For an event that costs us under $5,000 to run.
0: Incredible. And you, in essence, have my experience, first time walking in, walk in and there's this sort of path, this journey that you take. And along that journey, imagine, all of the best pizzerias in the world put themselves next to each other on one street, one main street, and this main street is called Pizza Main Street. And every single store is some pizza institution, and you just go from one to the other to the other. And as you walk through this journey, I, I think absolutely one of the biggest takeaways I got was this community aspect from the pizzeria owners themselves, uh, helping each other or connecting, and uh, and then obviously the you know the people coming in and buying the slices and you know these. Big empty pizza boxes walking in, and by the time you get to the end of the of the journey, you've got a full box with all of your favorite slices and kind of debating some of them with, with your friends that you uh, that you visited with. And just the whole event is, I mean, it's just incredible. It's a, it's a microcosm of, of sort of what the pizza community is all about. But all in, Slice Out Hunger, focused on, on hunger relief. You helped us lead one of the most powerful hunger relief, but also pizza community um, initiatives that I've ever seen in Pizza vs. Pandemic. Can you can you walk us through Pizza vs. Pandemic and what that
1: meant for you? Oh, man. So I think it was March 20th of 2020 yep. when you called me. And this will happen a lot, people who are listening, where I'll get a text or a call from Alir that's just like, hey, I want to bounce something off you. And then he'll like say some kind of crazy idea. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, let me know. But this one was, hey, all these restaurants have to close. We want to do something to support them, to keep them open. We know a lot of people who also want to support them. Can Slice Out Hunger somehow help us buy pizza from them and let's deliver that pizza to people who could use it? Like it, in March of 2020, those people were frontline workers, healthcare yes. workers, everything. EMS, all that. Everything. And um, I think it was probably within 24 to 48 hours that we had a website up. And that we were taking donations. And I think within two or three weeks that we had over $200,000 and a set of volunteer. Well, in the beginning, it was really just me making calls <laughs> yeah. and then a set of volunteers. Yeah. And we spent two solid years taking in donations and then using those donations to fulfill requests from frontline workers to uh, execute deliveries that we were purchasing from independent pizzerias all around the U.S., and just an absolutely amazing program. The Pizza Versus Pandemic program fed hundreds of thousands of people. It put money into independent small businesses. And uh, I think it showed people that you can do something at a time that we all felt really useless. Like I can't sit still. And when I had to stop doing tours, March 15th, I think was the last one. I had to stop doing tours and of course, I'm stuck at home and I went into, okay, well, I have to do some kind of crazy project right now. And I think I started rebuilding my entire 12 year old website. And then when I got that call from you, I was like, oh no, this is the project. This is way better. And, um, you know, it was like that moment where I think a lot of people on the planet were like switching into, well, what's my talent and how can I use that to help people in this situation that we have no control over. And that was it.
0: Luckily, unfortunately, we don't have to talk about pandemic forever. But the program itself is so powerful that you called me this time one day and said, how do we keep this going? What are some of the things we can do? Uh, and you had an amazing idea for how the program can evolve. Can you introduce the evolution of the program and you know, what it means for the future of it?
1: Yeah, so the mechanism for pizza versus pandemic is so simple. People make donations online. Sometimes they can specify at least what part of the country they want their money to go to. And then we have people can nominate a recipient for the pizza. And then we follow through and check it all out. The slice team pairs it up with a pizzeria that can safely comply with the order. And it's too good of a mechanism. So the new version of this program is directed toward helping the soup kitchens, shelters, after-school programs, senior centers, the people who are really always affected by food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that number has grown because of the pandemic. So Mm -hmm. this new program is called the Pie It Forward program. I love that name, And Pi it Forward. My brother texted me and he goes, I can't believe it took you this long to use the (laughs) phrase Pi it (laughs) Forward. And I said, we've been waiting. But yeah, Pi it Forward is the new mechanism. So you can sponsor a delivery. You can choose, as a a person at home wanting to help out, you can choose to donate any amount. You can specify one of eight regions in the US where you want that money to go. And then our team, uh, we've like refined the, the end process of how this all works over the past two years. And our system allows our volunteers to work with the beneficiaries and it allows the slice team to pair up a pizzeria and we get food to people who need it. And now we can do this. You can give somebody a birthday gift of sponsoring a hundred dollars worth of pizza to somebody on the West Coast. I love the idea of gift giving with that. So we, we wanted to capture what we were doing with pizza versus pandemic. And unfortunately, Hunger is such a big problem yep. that we see this as being a program that we will run indefinitely. Our real goal would be that we don't have to do anything because <laughs> it won't be a problem. It won't be but, a problem. Yeah. Unfortunately, but that's too so idealistic. All. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, we're doing what we can, but Pie Forward Program is is the rebirth of PVP. And how how do listeners find a program? They can go right to SliceOutHunger.org, and there's a button on the top that says Campaigns. They can go right to that. Very easy to find it. Um, or they can go to sliceouthunger.org slash pie it forward with dashes between. Amazing.
0: These aren't the only programs you've been involved in. Everything you really... We can sit here all day and talk about some of the initiatives and programs that you've worked on and or cool projects. You are, I think, the Guinness World Record holder for Pizza Box Collection.
1: Yes. <laughs> How did that come to be? That's the, the benefit of uh, imposter syndrome. Okay. Really, because... When I was starting the tour business, part of me was thinking, well, I, you know, I have to know as much as I can about every angle of the human experience with pizza as possible. And I saw a stat that said that two thirds of the pizzas eaten in America are at some point hit a pizza box, you know, delivery and takeout. We experienced pizza through the pizza box and I thought that was fascinating. So I started researching more about the technology and the history. And then as I did that, I, I would notice the pizza box at pizzerias because I usually eat at the pizzeria. It's the best way to experience, Mm -hmm. always. And sometimes I would see a pizza box that looked cool and I would save it. And at the second Slice Out Hunger event that we ever did, I thought, well, we need a way to convince people to come to our event, because I foolishly didn't think that a dollar slice was enough, but I was wrong. (laughs) And I decided, oh, I'm going to put up an art gallery, a pizza box art gallery on the wall, much like what you have in your beautiful studio. And I put out a call on YouTube and Twitter, and all these things. And people sent me pizza boxes from around the wow. world. So at that, that was our first like gallery show where we had, I think, 15 or 16 different countries covered. Oh, my God. And I thought, yeah. oh, this is so cool. We put them on the wall. And then there was a slippery slope because now that I couldn't stop collecting pizza boxes. <laughs> How big is your apartment? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, at that time, so my first, I'll have to send you pictures of this. I have a picture of, I'm not terribly handy, but I was handy enough to build a shelf above my door. It was very wobbly, but like I stored all the boxes up there. And then I moved into a place that had more storage space and then moved again for more storage space. But at the point where I got the Guinness World Record was really... I'd been contacted by a publisher in Brooklyn Uh who said, we were talking about books and we wanna do something about pizza because everybody talks about pizza lately and somebody who works for us knows you. And so I went in for a meeting and we were brainstorming and the owner of the publishing company, a guy named Dennis from Melville House Publishing said, oh, I've always wanted to do a pizza box art book. Do you know anything about pizza box art? And I said, well, yeah, I got like 350 pizza boxes in my closet at home. That's like a scary, weird thing to say to somebody in most contexts. So we decided then and there, like, all right, Dennis and Valerie are the run the company. And they said, yeah, let's do the book. So I think we just shook hands. And I was like, great, now I can collect more. And there's a reason. So in the, the week the book came out, I contacted Guinness World Records. And I said, I don't know how this works, but I got a collection of pizza boxes. Is this something you would do? And um, the way that their collection process works is... They tell you if the collection is something that they're even interested in Mm -hmm. because Guinness World Records is a business and you pay them. They do a certification thing. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And and I thought, well, can I afford to do this? Is it worth to do because it'll promote the book? And then they told me that they loved the idea of this collection being a record. And they were doing a thing called Guinness World Record Day, which is like a big press push. Uh to do a bunch of publicity that year. And Guinness World Record Day happened to be a week after the book came out. Oh, wow. And they said, oh, if you let us use your record as a for publicity, then we'll waive all the fees. And I was like, well, I'm not an idiot. Of course, let's do it. Yeah. And then they came to my apartment, they certified the collection. I had to have two outside counters and I had to film them as they counted the collection. So I got a couple people from Pizza Today magazine. <laughs> Seriously, they like, yeah. Josh and Mandy mm-hmm. from Pizza Today Magazine. They were in New York for two days. And whenever they're on a trip, it's so fast, they have no free time. And I said, I'm gonna pick you up, drive you to my apartment, you're gonna count the boxes, and then I will drive you anywhere you want to go at all, anywhere. And that's what <laughs> happened. They counted the boxes. Amazing. So that was a, that was a the world record was set at five ninety five.
0: Oh my God. Where are you now? Sixteen twelve. Oh my God. 1,612 different pizza boxes.
1: Yes. Unique boxes from 116 different countries. And they're, they're clean. I should say that. I know people <laughs> listening are like, oh, this guy lives in a rat's <laughs> nest. No, they're clean. They're organized. Yep. They're cataloged. I Amazing. have a spreadsheet. Oh, wow. I have them all pictures in my phone of every single box top. So I know that's why I know the exact numbers because yesterday I took a picture of a box from Montana that somebody sent me. I've got to my- come by. Yeah. I've got to come Dude, by and check it out. It's And the book is named, it's called Viva la Pizza: The Art of the Pizza
0: Box. Amazing. So, and it's still for sale, correct? It is available. Yeah. Great. Most memorable box.
1: And why? <sighs> well, it's funny because like it's like memorable pizza is has to do with the moment, uh-huh. right? And memorable pizza box for me, a lot of them are about the, like the moment I got them. Like who gave it to me. Sometimes people save them in their luggage and they travel and they bring them to me on a pizza tour, but there was one that I got in the Netherlands in 2005. I was at this pizzeria in, I don't, it may have been Amsterdam, I'm not sure, but I said, oh, can I get an empty pizza box? And they brought me the empty box. And to me, a pizza box that's even a generic box that's in Dutch or has is produced outside of the US is interesting because it's not what I'm used to. And I said, oh, this is a, oh, this is a really interesting box. And I remember the guy said, that's not that interesting. That's normal. I should show you the ones that I just got last week. And I was like, oh, well, I was like, please do. <laughs> and I wasn't, coll- I didn't have a world record at the time, but I was, so I had no credentials to show, but I was like, yeah, uh, let me see. And he pulls out this pizza box and I think I blacked out. I, rem- <laughs> I, I remember making a very high pitched squeal, but only because I heard the end of it. Like uh-huh. it's one of these moments and it was this box it's full bleed. So it's printed off the edges yep. of the box. Already very exciting because usually you design within the box. Correct. And it was full color and it was an image of what looked kind of a lot, 90% like Homer Simpson and 90% like Bart Simpson. Oh, wow. But they both had hair that was different and it was very clearly a trademark infringement, <laughs> which is my favorite genre of pizza box <laughs> and any art. Uh-huh. And I was just so blown away by it. It was like, the moment of excitement of discovery paired with how cool that box was. Incredible. That's probably still like a favorite.
0: Incredible. Last question. And we'll, we'll give you uh, we'll give you your
1: day back, but <laughs> are you, are, this is the problem is that we could talk we could about do this, all, we could do mean, this all day. And you're asking me, I have questions I want to ask you. So one day we'll do a flip.
0: When you, when you launch the podcast, the, the Viva La Pizza podcast, I will be, I'll be there.
1: That's actually a good name. Yeah. I didn't even think of that.
0: <laughs> what are the tips, tip or tips that you have for pizzeria owners and operators to help them be become more memorable to their customers?
1: I Look, as someone who has never owned operated or managed a pizzeria, my, my perspective on this is just the consumer perspective. And I think the number one thing you could do, and this is like maybe a little too abstract, but... Of course, if the food's not good, nobody's gonna wanna come uh-huh. back. But it's really about the experience. It's about creating something that's memorable. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you've got some crazy weird painting on the wall or you know, your pizza has 100 pounds of cheese on it and whatever. I think it's creating something that's authentic, tells you about the person who made it, I think is memorable. And you can not like it, but I feel like you can't complain about something that's authentic to somebody. Yeah. Unless you're just having a terrible day.
0: Authenticity. Do something out of passion. Create something really authentic. And it'll really come across to the end consumer.
1: Yeah. Because if it's something that's authentic to your experience, then nobody. if somebody copies you, then it's pretty clear. Yeah. I love that. And and being inspired by people is great. Of course. But you know, direct copy usually reads as yeah, copy. For sure. And that could be okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I, I think is the most important is creating that memorable, authentic experience, whether it's through the pizza, the ambiance, the whatever. The whole place should be you. Thank you so
0: much, Scott. This Clear. has been awesome. We never really got a chance to sit down and have this kind of a conversation. So this was really uh, powerful for me as well.
1: The last time it happened was at John's. Correct. At table much like this. It's 13 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And I know why we haven't had the conversation in a while. We've both been busy. Yeah. But I'm glad that uh, that this is sort of reset things and here we are having the conversation and there's microphones and cameras and
0: yeah and to your point of being inspired you've inspired this
1: Oh, so I, thank you I, there's no way i was the only one telling you obviously you have that you've inspired guests. a lot so thank maybe you so pressured. much yeah maybe maybe <laughs> a little bit of both <laughs> well it's been thank my honor so. thanks a lot for having me absolutely